Welcome to Lesson Impossible, an exploration of educational innovation. I'm your host, Aviva Levin. As always, I'm chatting with educators of all types who are on the forefront of pedagogy are making effective changes to old practices. Your lesson, should you choose to accept it, is to face unexpected challenges with a positive mindset, transparency, and humor. The special agent assigned to help you with this task is Marlena Valentine of Louisiana. Welcome to Lesson Impossible's five-part series on educational leadership. In this series of episodes, we'll hear from Anthony Turcala about the nature of the job of school administrator, from Craig Randall about a trust-based model of observation and feedback, from Merlina Valentine about overcoming extreme obstacles, from Joyce Matthews about training teachers and administrators to lead their own professional development, and from Charles Williams on leading through crisis like, for instance, a pandemic. My hope is that by the end of these five episodes, you'll have a clearer idea of what school leaders do, the challenges they face, the connections they make within their schools, and how they grow as professionals. I would guess that every teacher, at some point or another, has put themselves in the shoes of their administrator and tried to imagine how they would react or plan or speak in a given situation. While we might picture ourselves deftly dealing with a difficult parent or planning perfectly timed assemblies, I doubt any of us have wondered what we would do in the aftermath of a hurricane. Moreover, I'm pretty sure that none of us have wondered how we would resume our job as principal after becoming a quadruple amputee. Merlina Valentine has not only thought through how to do these things, but actually lived them and has become a stronger person and leader because of it. I'm pleased to be sharing the third episode in Lesson Impossible series on educational leadership, which Merlina and I recorded in June. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I'm so excited to get into your story and all the wisdom that you can offer teachers and administrators, but do you mind giving just a short summary of of who you are and what your role in education is? Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I am very excited about spending time sharing my insight from my 30-year career as an educator. I'm Marlena Valentine, and I began my career as a teacher in the elementary grades um, K to 5, and I also um, taught for 17 years in the classroom, and then I became an administrator. I was an assistant principal, a principal, and then uh, ended my career at our district office as the executive executive director of elementary schools. So I've had experience at every level in the organization um, of education. So I have a wealth of knowledge from very different perspectives. And do you have a, a favorite of those roles, like one that seemed to click the most? Or was it mostly just taking the good with the bad as you were trying out different things? Well, if I had to say one that truly um, brought joy to my life and I could not wait to get into the building every day, it would have been my time spent as a building principal. Um, I had 650 students pre-K to fifth grade and every single day was an adventure. No two days were the same. I had an amazing faculty and staff. And so it allowed me to spread my impact and influence at a bigger level than in my classroom. So I really connected. I really look forward to every 
every day. So I would say being a building principal was probably the one I connected with the most. That's interesting. And I'd like to to take a moment to talk about that. And I was just wondering what you think is the key to being a good administrator. Well, I think my 17 years in the classroom and having had 12 to 14 building principles in that time, I got a lot of experience, the good and the bad. And I pulled from all of those experiences to become the administrator that I was in the building. I believe the biggest key to having a successful role as an administrator is still building relationships. It's the same thing that worked in my classroom. I had to get to know not only my students and their families, but I needed to know the educators in the building. I built relationships, and I'm talking about daily, that was intentional work that I did in getting to know my students, my staff, their needs, and then how and what they responded to as a leader. So I would say if you're going to be successful, it's important that you recognize the power of the relationships that you build. And from there, everything else just fell in line for me. And I think that's the biggest thing that I would take away from my success. You were a principal when your town and your state was hit by Hurricane Katrina. How were you able to be a leader during such a confusing and, and devastating time? And here is the very amazing part of that story. That was my first year as a building principal. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yes. You know, I was turning 40 that year, and I thought that would be my biggest hurdle that year. Um, But as a first-year principal, we started the year and then restarted two weeks later. So our district did not take a direct impact um, hit by the storm, but we became a welcoming district for many, many displaced students. I had 100 additional students students that year. Um, I got additional staff that year. And then I think the biggest challenge for us was to still make our school feel like the family that we were and in welcoming these students and their families because they had experienced tremendous loss um, and they were very fearful of opening up to us. And this was a new area, a rural town, not New Orleans, the big city. Um, But we just started from the very beginning and saying that our role right now is to welcome these families, to make them feel like part of our community, to make sure our students um, feel like they're part of this. uh, We were the dragons, this dragon family. And then we're going to be strategic about the things that we do this year that make sure that we're not identifying the students who are displaced versus our students. They're going to be our students and everyone is here um, to make sure we're all successful. So it became an all-in philosophy. And I said, we're all in this year, guys. It's going to take every single one of us to make it through this year. Um, Things are not what we're used to. We're used to very small class sizes and we may have additional students. And every room in my building was filled with classrooms, um, you know, empty classrooms that we use for different reasons. We had to open those up and make sure we had room. And we just pulled together as a team. And because of the fact that everyone was in recovery mode, we all felt like this was part of our recovery therapy to actually do something worthwhile for the people who lost the most. And it became really a very inspirational year for all of us and a very successful year. Many of the families did not want to leave us when they you know, had an opportunity to go back home or to find a permanent place. They loved what we did so much. So I felt like our pulling together and making sure we were there for them is what made all the difference. 
for administrators who are listening to this and are thinking ahead to their year where students are going to be coming back into the building, they're not sure if it's going to be immediately, gradually, in hour chunks, like how, if you were still in the a role of building principal, how would you approach the the 2021 20, school year, the, the COVID year, as it were? Yes, I've been actually staying really connected to this because as a speaker and consultant, I'll be addressing many uh, faculties in the fall uh, as a welcome back kick keynote or kicking off the year. And so I've been keeping up with what are possibilities for what this year might look like. And it's amazing that from district to district, state to state, they all look very different. Um, So I know the uncertainty is a big thing for many of the teachers, the administrators, the districts. And I think our children and their families are feeling the same thing. They're very uncertain and unsure about, do we want to return? Are we going to go virtual? What is happening? I would say that we spent a lot of time that year after the storm when we returned on our students' social and emotional wellness. Um, And so our social emotional um, piece in our school was very, very um, a big influence of our success. So I would say that we better take care of our children who are coming back, remembering that their year ended abruptly, that they suffered loss because everything they knew was taken away, not just at home, I mean, at school, but at home as well. Um, And so I think in kicking off the year, some of the most important things you're going to do is to plan for the students and their social emotional wellness, Um, thinking about how are you going to incorporate things that welcome them back and that, you know, we're not going to just dive right into the academics without taking care of our children and their needs first. And I keep thinking about we're going to do the Maslow's before the Blooms, and that's what's going to be important, that hierarchy of needs. And they're going to need a sense of belonging again, a sense of security and that's where I would begin with my plans of how we're going to start the year and then build from there. You mentioned before about um, being a keynote speaker. You do have a really big reach as a motivational speaker. Do you mind talking a little bit about that journey? Absolutely not. I think it's my favorite part of life right now, which is always being able to share. So I have a very unique story that um, makes schools really connect with me, makes students connect with me, and of course makes adults anywhere that I meet connect with me. It's because I have a story of perseverance, of overcoming adversity. And I was a building principal two years after Hurricane Katrina, where I thought that would be my toughest year, um, 2005. But in 2007, I was at Meet the Teacher Night, and I had a pain in my side that was pretty intense. And I got it checked out on Tuesday morning because Wednesday was the first day of school and I surely wasn't going to miss that. However, I was diagnosed on Tuesday with a kidney stone. Pretty common, right? So I thought. Um, And I was told I would be treated on Friday by a specialist with my you know, course of treatment to figure out what we would do. But on Tuesday night, I had the worst case of what felt like the flu. And I ended up going to the first hospital. Um, There, they tried to figure out what was happening. They really couldn't figure out the reason why. And they thought maybe it was a bad case of the flu or something else. I was given some medication and told to follow up with my doctor. Wednesday morning, 
I had to miss the first day of school because I couldn't lift my head off the pillow. I then visited hospital number two where I was treated for several hours and then I was ambulanced to hospital number three for more urgent care. Um, At that point, I was in major organ failure. Um, My heart, my lungs, my kidneys all shutting down. After many hours there, I was then ambulanced to hospital number four, uh, where the first thing that I heard when I exited the ambulance was a doctor looking at my vitals and saying, I'm so concerned that if you guys had waited just 30 minutes longer, I'm afraid she wouldn't make it. And that's the last thing I heard because I was then put into a medically induced coma for seven days. I really thought that doctor was talking about someone else because I thought I have a kidney stone or the flu. Like he can't be talking about me. That night that I arrived by ambulance, my family was told I had a less than 10% chance of surviving the night. And that if I survived, that my life as I knew it would never again be the same. Well, I'm a fighter, so I beat the odds. You can tell that I'm here. 100% of me is still here. Um, but what happened is that stone blocked my kidney, and I was experiencing something called sepsis. Um, an infection was raging in my body, and so my body was fighting and trying to fight it. Um, for seven days, I was in a medically induced coma, no idea. I then spent three weeks in the ICU on a ventilator and three months in the hospital recovering from sepsis. And I thought I won the battle, which I did because I'm still here. Um, but the war was not over because as a result of the sepsis and the treatments needed to save my life, I also became a quadruple amputee. I lost both hands and both of my legs below the knee. And then I was sent home after that three-month hospital stay to figure out where and how I was going to come back from this and what it would take. And the entire time, I'll be very honest with you, what I thought about most besides family and friends was how would I get back to that building and be the principal again? I knew my children were looking for me to return, my community, and I had to do it. I had not finished what I started, and I set a goal for myself that I would be back and return. Most people thought the tragedy was going to be my defining moment where I would give up and it would be the end. She's a quadruple amputee. Poor her. No way. Um, There were no pity parties around me. All I did was fight to get back and to get my quality of life back. And two years to the date of that illness in 2009, I didn't just walk back into my school as principal. I'm extra. I'm from New Orleans area. I know how to go in. I danced my way back in as the building principal again. And I have not looked back a day since. And so when I tell that story of what it took to come back from a less than 10% chance of living to thriving in this new life as a quadruple amputee, audience can't help but connect with me and figure out how they too can go on in tough times. So that's been a message that I've enjoyed sharing with so many audiences, with so many groups, because I really connect with people. I'm transparent. I'm authentic. I show pictures. I want people to go through my story and see how I come out on the other side. When you mentioned, you know, being on a ventilator, it really made me think about so many teachers and building staff who have had COVID or might currently have it, or we don't know how long it's going to go on for. And, you know, how that, you know, you're lying there and you probably are, you're thinking about your kids and your colleagues. Do you have any specific tips or advice for for people that might be going through that 
specific thing? Yeah, I mean, this really, it brought back so many memories. Um, I had family members who were put on ventilators. Unfortunately, um, several of them did not make it. And so I have firsthand experience with um, family members asking questions like, what do we do? How, you know, what, how do we go on? Um, but what I say is in my time that I was there, um, I just focused on each day. I didn't think so much about what was the end result going to be. I just kept thinking if I wake up another day, then there's another opportunity for me to fight, to get better and to do what I need to do. To the families, I say that it's very difficult because my family could only come in at visiting times for an hour um, each time they came. Many of these people are not even allowed visitors. So they're seeing their families via um, you know, an iPhone and FaceTime. And so that's the tough part because when I I would see the faces of my family, I would get strength from them in saying, you know what, I'm, I can't leave them here. I, I have to fight to stay here. Um, so I, I don't have experience with that part of how that must feel for those people who are not even able to see their family members, to be with them. But I say just each day, keep thinking about that there's another day and it's another opportunity that they may uh, make it and that we are going to believe that they're going to make it. And then the support needs to be there the entire time. I said to many people who came, I only want positive thoughts and positive words because I truly believe sometimes what you think is what happens and what, you know, your actions will be a result of what you think. So I had to think about being very positive, uplifting to myself. And then I had people who were around me doing the same thing. And I think that positive energy, it truly made every day for me a brighter day. And so I know it's tough. I know it's hard, but the belief that someone's going to come through it is all we have to hold on to right now. We have to be hopeful. You're obviously very open about talking about your story and your successes. You know, I I think that for many school cultures, it's really hard for us when someone comes back up after something, you know, everyone signed the card and sent it, but it's often hard to acknowledge the pain that the person's gone through and people feel awkward. Like how, how do you see the best way to welcome someone back after an event like that? Well, I'll talk about my experiences when I returned because it was two years. um, And I received, I can't tell you how many cards, videos, recordings of my students and, you know, all of that, like you said, it really does like give you the energy to go on and the desire and the will to fight to come back. But that first day in that building, the first day back, there were a lot of realizations that happened for me because I immediately started thinking about physically what were things in the building that I would no longer be able to do or I would need assistance and support with. So for my staff, they were unsure of how much support should they offer. Um, Would it be too much support? Would I feel like they're trying to handicap me from doing things that I really could do on my own? So they were all very, very unsure of how to even approach approach me that first day. And then for me, and this works for me only, it's my only um, positive thing that I can share really made a difference. Um, I had a sense of humor about a lot of things. And in 
sharing some things and having humorous stories about things that happened to me, people started to let their guard down a little and to come into my space and to ask questions. For that person returning and for all of us returning, I say the best thing is to be your transparent and authentic self. Because when they saw that I didn't have walls up and I wasn't afraid to share and that I was going to share whatever was needed with them, they started coming in, asking questions, welcoming me back with open arms and saying, you know, we were all a little afraid of, you know, would we say the wrong thing about you? Would we do the wrong thing? And would we hurt your feelings? And I said, guys, I'm here. And so because we're here, if we don't pull together and have the mindset that this is going to all be okay, and we're going to do this together, then we're not going to make it. So yes, I know you want to walk on eggshells around me, but I tell you what, let's just pull together. And let's remember, I'm just excited to be here. And so anything that happens, we'll be able to deal with it. And I think when you come back from something as tragic as mine, um, the big things for most people are little things for me because I'm just happy to see every new day. And so I'm like, oh, that's all it is. Don't worry about it. But humor really helped me a lot because I made people feel more at ease when they came around me. So we did funny things. I told funny stories and, and I helped them just let their guard down and just welcome me back. I imagine that the kids were probably more blasé than the adults because adults can get very caught up in what we think is is normal or worried about how we appear where kids are like, well, okay, you're a quadruple amputee. That's what my principle is. And just da, 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 and move completely beyond that. And you are absolutely 100% accurate. Um, the students had no issue. Uh, they came up, they did ask questions, the older students, I'd say the third to fifth graders, because they were in the building when I left as students and they knew the whole journey upon my return. They were just excited to see me. Uh, a funny story I want to share with you is when I returned, my right hand had a prosthetic limb on it, but my left hand did not. Um, and so my shirt, would, I mean, my jacket would sort of cover that hand, but you could tell there were was not a hand there. Um, and I was nervous. I'm thinking my kindergarten, first and second graders, you know, what will they think? I have one hand. Um, the other one is not coming for two weeks. What do I do? And without any hesitation, I share with you that not one kid asked about it. Not one kid. Um, they saw me. I was, you know, my bubbly, happy self. They hugged, embraced me. And the funny thing was when I did receive my left hand, and by the way, my kids named my limbs so that I could share stories with the little kids. So my legs are called Jack and Jill. <laughs> and my hands are called Hansel and Gretel. Oh, that's so cute. Yeah. And they had a name that limb contest, my fifth graders. It was the cutest thing ever. But um, I remember when I came with my second hand for the first day, some of the older kids said, so which hand's your real hand? And I kept thinking, neither one. Like, did they not notice? I didn't even have it. It was just that they were not focused on what was missing from me, which is what I wanted to do upon my return. They were focused on the fact that I was there and that, you know, the inside of me radiated out and they could care less that I had missing limbs. All they cared about was I was in the building and that I was going to be passionate and, and fighting for them and their interests. So it, it was amazing how my kids welcomed me back. And even though they asked me to tie their shoes and open milk and I had to say, really, my special hands can't do that. Um, they never once just made me feel uneasy or made me question, you know, were they really looking at me as their leader? It was amazing. It was amazing. Children really are fantastic. They are. They are. 
And then when you moved into the uh, beyond the building into the district level, what were some of your favorite initiatives that you were able to accomplish? I think the biggest thing was that I had worked with every principal in the elementary area that I was supervising as their colleague. So I knew them. I knew their beliefs. I knew um, what was happening in their schools from our meetings every month. And so it was a great transition to already know the leaders. Uh, It allowed me to support them in the areas that they really felt they wanted support. Uh, Most importantly, we worked on climate and culture because I had such success with the climate and culture in my school in transforming it when I returned um, that I really felt that there were some important things. We already were a district that believed heavily in social emotional learning. Uh, We use an approach that every morning started with a morning meeting across our entire um, district. So I worked with just transforming cultures and climates and helping principals to assess the needs in their school. Uh, We had a very good system of quality control. So we knew the academic program was very strong. Our curriculum and instruction department was solid and um, very involved and engaged with our schools. So I did a lot of work with data analysis, data teams, um, and climate and culture. I'd say those were my big areas where I focused most of my energy and it brought about the best results. A new question that I've started asking after uh, interviewing Dr. Marquita Blades, who talked about teacher burnout, is trying to find out how successful educators have either overcome burnout, avoided it, or you know helped their staff with it. Do you have any advice to to add to the larger pool that I'm collecting? <laughs> uh, for me, it it always centered around people in my building who I thought were headed down that road because you can see it. You can see it when they disengage in meetings, when they disengage from activities that are designed to help enhance and improve what they do. Um, and a lot of them shared with me what those things were that were having you know, an impact on them and their feelings about coming to school every day, um, micromanaging, uh, lack of meaningful feedback, feeling like they were always being watched or scrutinized for what they were doing and being uh, so focused on task completion and not on them as, per, you know, a person in that classroom. So I always got insight and information from my teachers and staff. Um, we had a plethora of ways that we communicated back and forth and I got information. And so I would just say that for me, it was always about being in tune with what was happening in the building, um, what people were feeling. And then for us as administrators to address those things together with our staff, to be not afraid to have the elephant in the room be exposed and to be very open and honest. And so our staff meetings were very meaningful because we got feedback, they got feedback, and we used all of that to actually take ourselves to the next level. I think a lot of times the teacher burnout comes from all those things that I mentioned not being addressed, that they're sharing with people, this is how they feel year after year, yet nothing's changing. So I focused on, we did a survey at the end of every school year that gave very brutally honest feedback about what was happening in the building, from my teachers. It also had a parent and a student component. But when it came to the teacher feedback, I used that information to make my plans for how we could address those things. And I never let them feel like what they were sharing with me 
wasn't something important to me to fix or to address or to uh, communicate about. And so I just said that a lot of times we lose track of why we're in the building, that our kids are our priority and every decision we make should be about them. And I always brought them back to that. So tell me why you became an educator. Isn't it about the children? Let's get back to that. So I always think about just trying to address those big things that are issues for teachers who are struggling in a way that as an administrator, I can have them coming to me and saying to me, you know, I feel like you're really listening. And that's a big part of it. I listened. Once you realize after you've been solicited for feedback that someone's listening to that, that empowers you to then give unsolicited feedback because you know that it's welcome and that there's going to be results from it. Absolutely. My favorite question to ask my guests is if I were to give you unlimited funds, unlimited time, just whatever you needed, what would your ideal school or school system look like? Well, for me, I am always um, happy about walking into a school and knowing from the minute I walk in what they value, what they believe in, and what they do for students. So I would have a school that was welcoming to our families, to our school uh, community, to our children. I would have a school that definitely has a social emotional piece, um, uh, if not a program, that it's a priority in the school. I would have a school whose climate and culture is one of excellence, consistency, uh, one where students know what's expected of them, where there is high achievement um, because everyone believes that together they can impact student achievement, that collective efficacy has to be there. I would say that there's a shared belief in the power that we possess as administrators and um, teachers and staff to impact our daily learning, that there's a a common language across the building one of high expectations, and not just through words, but through actions. And I really feel like, for me, that we're promoting student discourse and uh, metacognition and, and the practices that are in the building are consistent across all grade levels. It's a relentless pursuit of excellence that I believe is necessary and that there should be no excuses in the building. And I want to see people exhibiting that through what they're doing. Culturally relevant education should be a part of it as we embrace everyone that walks through our door and utilize the things that they bring to each lesson as an asset to our building. I just think that in that school, it should feel inclusive, it should be love, it should be support, and it should be a place where children hate to leave at the end of the day and educators go home enthused and excited about coming back the next day. Do you have anything else or any other questions you want me to ask or anything else that you want to share uh, before my last question, which is just going to be about how to contact you? Um, No, I think you got a pretty good picture of who I am and my journey on my, uh, you know, educational road to success Um, and having had so many experiences and then to have a life altering experience. It gave me a different outlook um, about just returning to education. And I'll tell you this, if you want to reignite somebody, have them return to something that they've worked hard to get to and open that door and say, here it is. I, I, I still get excited when I think about that day I returned and in the year that I returned and the successes I had, I became principal of the year for our district. And 
for our region and then one of the top five principals in the state of Louisiana. And people began to first say, oh, that's that quad amputee principal. And I always reminded them, I'm a principal who happens to be a quadruple amputee. Um, I never let anything define me except what I feel is important to me. So I think you've covered pretty much my entire journey as well as my story. Yeah. And and congratulations on all, all those successes. Thank you. Thank you. And how would someone get in contact with you or find out more about who you are and what you do? Absolutely. So I would suggest they visit my website and it is www.shero.valentine.net. So I'm not a hero. I'm a Shiro. Um, So it is ShiroValentine.net. That name was given to me by someone I met on my journey who said, I'll build your website for you if you allow me to use that name. And so um, ShiroValentine.net is one way. I'm also on Twitter at Merlina Inspires, which is my first name, Inspires. Um, I'm on Facebook with just my name, Merlina Valentine. And find me on Instagram. Same way, Marlena Valentine. So pretty simple to find me. Well, thank you so much again for for sharing your story and giving some inspiration as well as some hopefully concrete things that administrators can do as as the school year begins. So thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity and I thank you for allowing me to share my journey and my insight. This episode will not self-destruct in five seconds, but will remain available on your preferred podcasting platform. More details about this episode, links to resources or people we mentioned, and information in general about the podcast and its mission can be found at LessonImpossible.com. If you enjoy the podcast, you can help other listeners discover it by rating and reviewing on iTunes, forwarding it to a colleague, or posting a link in your favorite educational chat. This has been Less Than Impossible, and I was your host, Aviva Levin. 